0: And now, O Lord, as we gather to hear Your Word, to see Your Word, and to be fed by Your Word, we ask, O Lord, that You would feed us. We ask that You would give us understanding through Your Holy Spirit. We ask that You would give us a desire to live for Christ's glory. A desire to obey. And we know, Lord, that by the power of the flesh, those things are impossible. But by Your Spirit working within us, we pray, O Lord, that You would teach us, teach us the sufficiency of Christ. Teach us to believe and help us in areas where we struggle to believe. We pray, O Lord, that Christ would be glorified and that we would be encouraged and strengthened and convicted and comforted as You see fit, as You see our need to be. And we pray this not only for ourselves, but for our children. We pray that our children would see the sufficiency of Christ. And by children, I mean both children inside the womb and outside of the womb. We pray for their salvation. We pray for the day when they will believe by Your grace. We look forward to that, O Lord. And we pray that the seeds that are planted today would be protected, that they would be planted in deep, rich soil, and that they would bear fruit in the time You have ordained for the glory of Christ. Use this time, O Lord, to teach us and instruct us according to Your way, Your will, as revealed by Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 40 today as, um, as the Lord would have it. Uh, we won't be uh, getting to the point where Lazarus is resurrected in this passage today. No, that will actually fall on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, not that I planned it that way; it just happened to fall that way. So, uh, so, so praise the Lord. Uh, that's to, to me. That's that's a pretty cool um, sign of God's hand and just what He does. But today, as we continue our study of John's Gospel by looking at chapter eleven, verses thirty-five to forty, our passage is going to start by reminding us of what. I would say is without a doubt the most terrifying reality that we as human beings face. Now you might be thinking right off the bat that I'm talking about death. Uh, So, you know, and that's uh, there there is an aspect of death in this passage, obviously. Lazarus in this passage is dead. Uh, and, And while death might be indeed a terrifying reality, at least for some, There's something far more terrifying than even death. Death would at best be second place, a very distant, distant second place. No, the most terrifying reality that we face is that God is holy and we are not. We're sinners, both by nature and by choice, and that's such a common thing for us not only to hear but to experience in our daily lives that I fear it may lose the full force that it should have on us to be confronted with that reality that God is holy and we are not. After all, when something becomes common, what do our brains do? Our brains just kind of glance over it. You ever been driving and you get from point A to point B, but you've driven it so many times that you get to the point where you're like, I don't even remember hitting this light or that light. It's because once our brains because become very common with something, uh, something very familiar with something, our brains just kind of gloss over it after a while. But friends, it is terrifying to consider the holiness of God in light of the sinfulness of man. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, said this. He said, quote, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, Your law is is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. End quote. The holiness of God, in light of the utter sinfulness of man, is a terrifying thing to think about. And there are three passages in Scripture that really illustrate how terrifying this reality is. First, there's Isaiah, chapter 6. Uh, when, when Isaiah stood before God in the courts of heaven, he was immediately terrified of his predicament. He cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. The Hebrew word for woe means a passionate cry of grief or despair. Isaiah was basically saying, I, I'm done for. I, I'm, I'm cursed. Why? Because he stood in the presence of a holy God with unclean lips. In that moment, Isaiah got a much clearer understanding of how terrifying it is to realize that God is holy and we are not. The second passage that I would draw your attention to is found in Luke's gospel. In chapter 5 we find that Peter and uh, the other fishermen had been out all night fishing and they had caught nothing and upon seeing this Jesus who was a carpenter by trade said to them put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now... Have you guys ever been around fishermen? If there's anything that we know about fishermen, it's that they are a rough and rowdy bunch. Uh, They're very tough people. Uh, they're, They're rugged. And with all those things in mind, it must have been pretty insulting to them, felt at least insulting to them in that moment, that a carpenter would be telling them how to do their job. And yet Peter replied by saying, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And then we read in verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And Peter was instantly struck with the realization that he was standing in the presence of God. And he was humbled. He realized that when he had doubted Jesus, he had doubted God. And he realized that this doubt was sinful. And so as these boats are are so loaded up with fish that the boats themselves are starting to sink, Peter stands before Jesus and he just crumbles. We read, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Like Isaiah, Peter in that moment got a much clearer understanding of how vast the difference is, the chasm is between God and us, between God's holiness and our sinfulness, and how terrifying that was for Him in that moment. The third passage I'd draw your attention to is found in the book of Revelation, the first chapter of Revelation. The book starts with the Apostle John receiving a revelation, a vision of Christ. Now keep in mind that John had spent uh, a few years Uh, at least, in Christ's uh, presence by His side in His youth. Uh, That's why we have the book we're studying right now. That's why we have John's Gospel. It's an eyewitness account of what he heard and what he saw as one of the disciples of Jesus. And yet, Here's John in his old age receiving this revelation of Jesus, this vision of Jesus, and his reaction to seeing Jesus isn't to jump up and, and hug Jesus and say, it's been so long since I've seen you. So, it's so good to see you. No, John says that upon seeing Jesus, he says, when I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. In other words, he was so terrified, he fainted. Now, why do you think that these three men responded to being in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of God, the way that they did? It's because sin, any degree of sin, even the slightest degree of sin or sinfulness, is completely, unequivocally, incompatible with who Jesus is by the essence of His very nature. Let me say that again because this is a really important concept for us to wrap our minds around and understand when we come to the passage at hand today. Sin is totally incompatible with who Jesus is by the essence of His very nature, His holy, righteous, just nature. It doesn't, sin doesn't belong in Jesus' presence. Sin is incompatible with who Jesus is. We see that in the way that he responds to things like disbelief and doubt. Now we saw in our previous lesson that as Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's what we read back in verse 33 of chapter 11. And we saw that that word that gets translated deeply moved uh, really indicates a sense of indignation or anger. It's the sound uh, that's related to the sound that an angry animal makes when they snort. The wage of sin is death, and death was like this enemy that was standing triumphantly over Lazarus as Jesus, Mary, and Martha approached the tomb, and that caused Jesus to feel this sense of anger, of indignation. And of course, he was followed by the disciples also and those who had come from Jerusalem to grieve the death of Lazarus. But seeing and standing in the presence of the effect of sin, the death of his friend, that's what caused Jesus to feel a sense of anger or indignation. Jesus hates sin. We like to talk about how how Jesus loves. And of course, Jesus does love. But you can't love without hating. The reason Jesus loves righteousness is because he hates sin those those two things go hand in hand they're two sides of the same coin he's gracious and he's merciful but he will not withhold his wrath against sin indefinitely this helps us to understand his response to being in the presence of unbelief unbelief is actually the only thing that we're told Jesus was amazed by or that he marveled at. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, we read, And he wondered at their unbelief. That's the NASB's translation. Others say he wondered or was amazed. Uh, wondered is just a, kind of a nice way of saying that he was just taken back by the disbelief that he was seeing. That, that he was perplexed by it. That he was amazed by it. It was bewildering to him to see such unbelief unbelief when it comes to Jesus is the most foolish the most irrational thing in the world think about the things that we've seen just in the cha- in, in the, the gospel of John think about the signs and wonders that people have seen Jesus do throughout this gospel when Jesus fed the 5,000 families back in chapter 6 what was the response of the people Not a single one out of around 20,000 people, not a single one believed. Not one. He'd taken two fish and and five loaves of barley, and he fed somewhere around 20,000 people. And the disbelief of the people is probably as amazing as the miracle itself. The thing that allows them to stay in unbelief is sin. That shows us the irrational nature of sin, and it's foolish because it prevents a person from seeing the glory of God. So the point of the passage that we'll be studying today, we'll be looking at verses 35 to 40, the point of the passage is that the way to behold the glory of God is to first believe. If those people who are fed... The 20,000 people who were fed, if they had believed first, they would have seen the miracle for what it was. God's glory being put on display. To behold the glory of God, you first must believe. In our culture, we tend to think in terms of belief following after something being proved to us or demonstrated to us. We say things like, I'll believe it when I see it, but that's not how it works with Jesus. That's not how it works with God. With Jesus, belief must come before seeing. Faith is actually what gives us, you might say, the proper lens through which we see. Without that lens, we're blind. We're just in the dark. And so as we continue our study this week, we'll see two types, again, of reactions. The two types of reactions that people had to Jesus Coming to the tomb of Lazarus and weeping in front of it. And we'll consider Jesus' response to one of these reactions. Let's start by looking at verses 35 to the first part of verse 38. John writes Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Let's go ahead and and stop there. There is so much in those verses. The fact that Jesus wept is a clear demonstration of Jesus' humanity. It's, It's clearly showing, perhaps clearer than any other... Passage in the entire Bible that Jesus was fully human. He wasn't stoic or cold about the death of Lazarus. He wasn't impervious to things like grief and sorrow and suffering. He was not only able to experience heartbreaking grief, but he actually did. He knows what it's like to be human because he was, in fact, fully human. He is God incarnate, absolutely. He's God in the flesh, absolutely. But He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. That's why the author of Hebrews reminds us that He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He writes, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's amazing news. That is wonderful news but we have to be careful not to separate that truth from its proper application in our lives, which is actually found in the following verse where we read, therefore, that means in light of that truth, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's fully man so He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's fully God so He can do something about it. One of the beautiful things that we've seen in this 11th chapter of John is that that's exactly what Mary and Martha did. They drew near to Jesus. They drew near to Jesus. They came confidently to Him. They came quickly to Him. Confident that He alone was able to give them the grace that they needed to endure in their time of need. We'd be wise to learn from their example. The humanity of Christ is demonstrated by His weeping over the death of Lazarus, over the way that sin affected His people. It elicited two responses from people. Some admired Jesus for His love. Some admired his tender affection for Lazarus, while others openly and blatantly mocked him. People are no different today, by the way, are they? These mockers and scoffers, they're filled with disbelief. They're thinking how useless that Jesus could heal a blind man that he didn't know, and yet he's unable to do anything about this friend of his that he did know who has died and so they ask could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying what's the answer to that question yeah yes he could have he could have prevented Lazarus from dying but God's sovereign he had something better in mind something better planned for his people and that's what he explained to his disciples earlier in the chapter. Now, I don't have a whole lot more to say about these, these two verses. We, we covered them last week. But it's important that we see them because they're vitally important for us to understand what comes next in the next verse. Look at verse 38 with me. It says, so... Let's just stop right there it's easy for our eyes to just jump right over that word number one it's common number two it's so small but in the original language it's a word that connects an effect to its cause the, the greek word is un but it, it gets translated so 18 times 18 times it gets translated therefore 263 times so Which do you think is the better translation? I would say, therefore. And some translations have that. But like I said, this word connects an effect to its cause. We've already seen the cause. The cause is found in the previous verse. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? The cause is the mockery. The disbelief that Jesus faces. These are people who are not looking for a reason to believe No, actually, what they're doing is looking for a reason to disbelieve. They're looking for their doubt to be validated. Now, let's consider the effect of this cause. Therefore, or so, therefore, Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Jesus' weeping shows his humanity. The fact that Jesus is once again deeply moved, that's the same word we saw before, which indicates anger or indignation. This demonstrates His deity. He's fully God and fully man. Why was He again deeply moved? Because of the mocking disbelief that some had to His weeping over Lazarus. You don't see these people, by the way, mocking anyone else who's grieving you don't see them mocking mary or martha or or any of the people who had come from jerusalem to grieve with them but unregenerate man is never consistent when it comes to jesus their hatred for him results in irrationality it results in complete foolishness it results in what psychologists call cognitive dissonance Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says, "...for consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." In other words, if you think Jesus is sick of you coming to Him with your prayers and petitions and all those things, consider that He endured incredible hostility so frequently, by sinners he was willing to endure the hostility of sinners but their mocking disbelief toward Jesus is entirely irrational it's entirely foolish and it is entirely sinful it speaks volumes of man's complete depravity but it speaks even more perhaps of the nature of God especially as the nature of God is related to the sinfulness of man it reminds us that God hates sin. It reminds us that being in the very presence of doubting, sinful rebellion is entirely incompatible with His infinitely holy, righteous, and just nature. It reminds us that God doesn't just give a wink and a smile toward sin and toward rebellion and toward disbelief and doubt but that he is indignant toward it. And rightly so. Writing on the effects of sin that echoed throughout the physical created universe, Paul says this to the Romans in Romans chapter 8 verses 20 to 23. He says for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now and not only this but we are but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This is talking about how much we, how, how uncomfortable we are being around the sinfulness of the world, and how eager we are for all that to be done away with. Not only does creation await the day when God will make all things new, but as new creations in Christ who have a new nature, We too have this this sense of of groaning, of indignant suffering as we eagerly await the new heavens and the new earth when we'll be free from the presence of sin forever. When we'll be separated from its presence. When we'll be free from its power over us. Now if that's how we we feel now, if that's how we as fallen human beings feel now while we're still clothed with a flesh nature, that still has every sinful inclination. How much infinitely more did Jesus feel that way? Given that he didn't have any sinful inclinations or sinful desires, his only inclination was toward righteousness, his only desire was to please the Father. See, see we're, we're double minded. But Jesus isn't. There's part of us that is either unmoved by sin altogether or just not moved as much as it should be. But for those of us who are a new creation in Christ, we, we do have this new nature. That's what Peter taught when he wrote, uh, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. So we've escaped the corruption that's in the world, but we still carry around with us the corruption of the flesh. There's part of us that doesn't hate sin, or at least doesn't hate, hate it as much as we should, and there's part of us that absolutely abhors sin. So it should be uncomfortable for us to be in the presence of sin and unbelief. But Jesus didn't have the corrupted nature that we do, the fallen uh, nature of the flesh that we do. We truly can't even begin to imagine how repulsive it must have been for him to be in the presence of sinful unbelief. We can't even begin to imagine how repulsive he sees sin to be. To be surrounded by sin and by the effects of sin on every side And to yet withhold an outpouring of his just wrath required divine patience and divine strength. And those he had, he was fully God and fully man. The goal of the Christian life, friends, is for every one of us to grow more and more in Christ's likeness to become more like Him in our affections, in the things that we love and the things that we hate. We are becoming more like Christ. God promises that He is causing all things to make us more like Christ. But as we grow more and more in Christ's likeness, my prayer is that you and I, I both would learn to become indignant towards sin too but, but let's be sure that the sin that we're most indignant toward is our own is our own do, do you hate sin i mean you you sin we all sin i sin we all sin I mean, we do it because there's part of us that just doesn't take sin seriously enough but do you hate that you don't take it seriously enough That's the question. See, if if you love righteousness, you do hate that you love sin to, to some degree. The degree to which you love righteousness will correspond with the degree to which you hate sin, especially your own. It was Jonathan Edwards who said this. He said, quote, A true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. Quote. And for us to be like Christ, we have to get to the point where there's no sin that we're comfortable with, there's no sin that we don't hate. Is that the attitude that you have towards sin and holiness? that it's your great concern? If you struggle for that to be your greatest concern, if you, pr- if you struggle for that to be your attitude towards sin and holiness, pray. Ask God to help. Is that not what He wants? And if you're a child of His, would He not want to help you? Of course He would. Do you recognize the sinful inclinations of your own heart? And do you long for the day when you'll be freed from those inclinations? Let me ask you this. Which do you long for more eagerly? Being freed from your own sinful inclinations or being freed from being in the presence of the sinful inclinations of others? I think that if we recognize the sinfulness that still resides within our own hearts, we would be more eager to be freed from our own sinful inclinations, our own sinful tendencies. The wage of sin is death. That's all that you and I deserve from God. So why doesn't God give us what we deserve? Why doesn't Christ, as He stands here and He's angry toward the unbelief of these doubting people who are just looking for a reason to justify their unbelief, why doesn't Jesus strike them down right on the spot, given that His holiness demands that the wage of sin be death. R.C. Sproul answers that question, writing again in his book, The Holiness of God. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of His holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. End quote. And that describes the attitude of these people who are mocking Him. They don't appreciate the fact that God is giving them their next breath. They don't see the wonder of God's grace, of the way that He has withheld His wrath from them. But all this is to say that Christ was indignant, that He was rightly angered by the blatant and intentional disbelief of these people who mocked Him openly, and yet He doesn't act on it. At least not yet. By grace he endures their mocking. It's not going to distract him from the mission at hand. And the mission at hand is putting the glory of God on full display for all these people to see in raising Lazarus from the grave. Nevertheless, the disbelief of some would not be without consequence. Little did they know how costly their disbelief would be not only one day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, but even in that moment, it was going to cost them. Their disbelief was going to prevent them from seeing the glory of God put on full display through the work of Christ in raising Lazarus from the grave. The principle that we need to see here is that faith in Christ is the lens which allows us to see his glory. We would say, seeing is believing. But in God's economy, believing is seeing. And even Martha needs to be reminded of this principle. So let's continue looking at the second half of verse 38 to, uh, to verse 40. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? One of the things we have to understand as we come closer to the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead is that, like with every miracle, there's a bringing together of the physical and the spiritual. The the physical is giving an illustration of the spiritual. The lesson here begins with understanding that Lazarus is dead. There are not degrees of death. There's either dead or not dead. And Lazarus is completely dead. And as such, He's an illustration of something spiritual. He's a picture of man in his unregenerate nature. He's a picture of somebody who is spiritually dead in the same way that the crippled man that we saw back in John chapter 5 was a picture of someone who is spiritually unable to come to Jesus, but to whom Jesus must come. If they are to be healed, he's a picture. Lazarus is a picture of someone who is spiritually dead in the same way that the the masses who were fed at the feeding of the 5,000 families were a picture of our need to spiritually feed on and be nourished by Christ and His Word. Lazarus is a picture of Ephesians chapter 2. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, you were dead. Speaking spiritually, there. That is a picture. That's what Lazarus is giving us a picture of. And Jesus coming to intervene. Jesus coming to raise Lazarus from the dead is a picture of God sovereignly imparting life to His people. As we see in the next couple of verses in Ephesians chapter 2, which say this, continuing in verses, uh, verse 4 through the first part of, uh, of verse 6. But God... There's the contrast. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him. Jesus coming to sovereignly raise Lazarus from the grave is a picture of that Wonderful passage. A picture of sovereign election. Lazarus is physically dead. There's no question about it. He's not partly dead. He's not just really, 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 really close to dying. No, he is entirely dead. That's made evident by the words of Martha, who tries to turn Jesus away from the tomb because of the stench that would come from the tomb if it were opened. Uh, If you're reading from the King James Version, it it says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. I think that's probably my favorite translation. He he stinketh. But it's likely that the body of Lazarus was not the only one in this tomb. Uh, The common practice was that many people would be laid in a tomb for a period of time while their bodies decomposed, and then at a certain time uh, down the road, at a later time, the body would be moved to an ossuary. But even if Lazarus was the only person in this tomb, yes, the, the odor would have been intolerably and offensively strong. Uh, there, there's really no room to speculate that Lazarus might have been only close to being dead and, and buried prematurely. I mean, if nothing else, he's been in there for four days. And this is a place where the temperatures get up over 100 degrees in the daytime. Somebody cannot go four days without water in that climate. So he'd be dead from that, if nothing else. He is unquestionably dead. Those who have tried to deny that he is dead, they're really no different from those people who were openly mocking and scoffing Jesus. Many have seen Martha's comment here as a statement of unbelief trying to keep jesus away from the tomb you don't open that up it's good. he stinketh uh, but let's be honest put yourself in her shoes for just a second and think about this wouldn't you have done the same thing first of all there's the odor you, you wouldn't want to deal with the odor of a decomposing body after 4 days but even if you're like me and you don't have a sense of smell, I was born with no sense of smell, uh, you, you still would find this problematic. I mean, can you imagine having to see the body of a decaying loved one after four days? You don't want to see that. You, you don't want to put your eyes on that. That would be absolutely horrific, especially to those who knew Lazarus and who loved him. We can't deny that Martha seems to have either she's either forgotten what Jesus said, or she misunderstood what Jesus said, or maybe both. When he had told her earlier, "Your brother will rise again." The truth is that, as Richard Philip notes in his commentary, "quote She shows how easily our faith breaks down under trial, and how often we need encouragement to remember what we believe." End quote. It's also possible that Martha just wanted to make sure that Jesus didn't transgress the law of Moses. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, we read this command, The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. So there's an element of uncleanliness that's at risk in Martha's mind. Further, to prevent the priests from becoming unclean, they had their own set of rules about handling a corpse, a dead body. In Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priest, the son of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may defile himself. So touching a corpse, touching a body, a dead body, w- was defiling for them. Maybe Martha's thinking, if that's what Jesus has in mind, he can't do that. Is it possible that she's just trying to keep him pure? I mean, she didn't know what he was going to do, uh, obviously. She didn't know that he was not going to touch the body of Lazarus. But it's at least a remote possibility that she was just trying to preserve his, his purity Even though Jesus wasn't going to transgress the law of Moses, either way, whatever Jesus was about to do, He was going to do without transgressing the law. He was going to do without sinning as He always did. He always avoided sinning. He never violated the law. Whatever the reason that she said this to Jesus was, Jesus gives her a gracious and important reminder. It's not a rebuke. He's just reminding her in her moment of grief of what she believes. He says, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Something that we have to see, not only in this miracle that Jesus is about to do here, but something that we see Jesus do in the context of every miracle that he does, is he demonstrates a concern for the faith of his followers. That's what this is all about. Think about it. When Jesus was sleeping in the, the bow of the boat, and the disciples are afraid uh, as, the, as the waves lap over the boat, and they fear that the boat's about to sink and kill them all, he stands up and he silences the wind and, and stops the waves, and he turns to them and he says, Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? It was their faith he was concerned about. In Matthew chapter 9, when two blind men begged Jesus to have mercy on them, before he healed them, he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. He's interested, he's concerned in their faith. In Mark chapter 5, When Jesus healed the woman who touched the edge of his hem, he turned to her and said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Earlier in this chapter, when Jesus delayed going to see Lazarus as Lazarus was sick, and Jesus got notice of that, he explained why he was delaying to the disciples, saying, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, it was to deepen the faith, strengthen the faith, sanctify the faith of his followers. And so in light of this principle, he says to Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? This is one of the biggest problems with the charismatic movement, by the way. Their idea is, generally speaking, that if people see something miraculous, that they will believe. Okay, that's the way things work in the world, and, and that's often a wise policy in the world, let's not deny that. Think about it. I mean, if somebody, uh, if you're a boss and somebody comes and applies for a job and boasts that they are qualified to do this and to do that, don't you want them to prove it? Don't you want to see some kind of certification or some kind of credentials? You know, that's not unwise, If you go to get a loan for a car, they want proof that you are not only able to make payments on your loan, but that you are a responsible person. So they pull up your credit history, and rightfully so. Those things are wise. Seeing is believing with many things in life. But that's not the way that people come to behold God's glory. That's not the way that people come to faith. People come to faith by grace alone. They are drawn to Christ by the Father. They are spiritually dead and only God can impart life to them being spiritually dead, they're unable to do anything about their condition. They're totally unable to help themselves, just as Lazarus is totally unable to do anything about the situation that he is currently in. But for Martha to really witness, to really see the glory of God and what Jesus is about to do, she will have to hold on to her faith for just a few minutes longer. Because Believing is seeing. Faith is the lens which will allow her to see. See, the scoffers and and the mockers, if they're looking for a reason to disbelieve when Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, they'll find it. They'll say, oh, he wasn't all the way dead, or something. If they they want to explain away the, the, the miracle of raising somebody from the dead, they'll be able to do it. People have been doing it toward the resurrection of Jesus for 2,000 years. It'll be irrational. It'll be foolish. But disbelief always is when it comes to Jesus. In fact, it is the most irrational thing in the world. There's an important lesson for us here. And it's this. We just have to take God for His Word. His Word is enough. He is true. We have to believe that. We might not see it. We might not understand it now, but we will. If God says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. We have to take God at His Word. In all aspects of life, this will not only serve us well, but it will be a wonderful witness to the true power of true faith. We're as challenged today to believe before seeing, you know, before seeing the glory of God, as Martha was, we're as challenged as she was. Think about it. If you were to, to fall terribly ill today, and the doctors were to tell you, "We we found that you have a disease that's going to end your life within two months," and you were able to say, "Okay, whatever my God ordains is right and is for my good and His glory," so. Whatever comes is what he has decreed and I accept it. That's an amazing demonstration of faith. Or if you were to lose your job next week and you were able to to say to your boss on the way out, I accept this knowing that God has ordained it not for my shame, not for my embarrassment, but for His own glory and my good. Have a nice life, boss. Again, what, what what a witness to the power of true faith. The truth is that God is causing all things to work for our good. Do you believe that? The truth is that God is sovereign over our circumstances. Every circumstance. Do you believe that? The truth is that God is causing every situation you face to grow you in Christ's likeness. Do you believe that? Sometimes you have to just say, okay, whatever, God, whatever you say. You say that you're using this situation to conform me to the image of Christ. I believe you, but I don't understand. But years down the line, you will. And if you believe, you'll see. If you haven't believed in Jesus, friends... I am not here to give you every piece of evidence. I'm not here to convince you to believe. I'm here to urge you to believe. The Bible doesn't say repent and believe if you've considered all the evidence and you've you've ruled in God's favor. You're not God's judge. No, God is the judge. And God is the one who has the authority to command us to simply repent and believe. And if you'll do that, you'll see the glory of God as He fills you with peace, as He fills you with joy, and as He works in your life to make you more and more like Jesus. And if you won't believe, I have to warn you of this, that God will still be glorified in your condemnation, but you won't see the glory of it. You'll see people in your life who who do come to saving faith and who are changing, who are being transformed because of what God is doing in their lives, and you'll find some way to irrationally just explain it away. Oh, it's just religion. Religion's a sedative for him, and he changed. It's common. It's how people explain it away. But having overlooked and been long-suffering in regards to your ignorance and your disbelief if you have not believed, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The way to behold the glory of God starts not by considering the evidence, but by believing, by simply believing. Once you've done that, you'll be ready. You'll have the lens that's necessary to really behold the glory of God in the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And you'll be ready to really behold the glory of God in Jesus being raised from the grave. And we'll consider those things next time, in two weeks. But until then, may faith be the lens that allows you to see the glory of God on display not only in your life but in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the way that it instructs us and corrects us. For the way that it shows us Your wisdom for the way that it shows us by nature our utter foolishness and irrationality. And when we consider these things, O Lord, all we can do is praise You and thank You for the gift of faith. Thank You for giving us the lens which allows us to behold Your glory. Thank You for sending Christ who lived a perfect life who never strayed from Your will, who never transgressed the law, and yet who died the death of a sinner in order that all who believe in Him may have life, may be forgiven, may stand before You justified and blameless, as blameless as Christ Himself is. We thank You for these great gifts, O Father. And we pray that You would We pray that you would teach us to love what you love and to hate what you hate, to turn from sin and to live a life of faith and obedience unto Christ for his glory to be seen in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.